0: Four volumes of fiction and essays so far, with still more books in the works, along with plays and occasional poetry, political diatribes, irreverent musings about God and man, and thousands of private letters that revealed his innermost desires and deepest insecurities. But he was still best known for two novels of boyhood set in a small Mississippi River town, very like Hannibal The Adventures of Tom Sawyer in which he transformed his own often difficult early years into an idol that became the envy of generations of American boys and girls, and adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which proved for the first time that art could be created out of the American language, while laying bare the contradictions at the heart of American life, slavery and racism. If you attempt to create and build a wholly imaginary incident, adventure, situation, he once wrote in a notebook, you will go astray, and the artificiality of the thing will be detectable. But if you found on a fact in your personal experience, it is an acorn, a root, and every created adornment that grows up out of it and spreads its foliage and blossoms to the sun will seem realities, not inventions. You will not be likely to grow astray. Your compass of fact is there to keep you on the right course. During his long, astonishingly prolific literary career, he had drawn upon facts from every part of his life. But his memories of Hannibal had always remained the true north of his compass of fact. And it was good to be home again. Word spread overnight that Hannibal's favorite sonnet returned, and a sizable crowd was waiting outside when he and Roberta's love emerged from their hotel at 9.30 a.m., "'and started off on foot for Clemens' old family home at 206 Hill Street. "'The house I lived in when I whitewashed the fence fifty-three years ago,' "'he called it in a letter to his wife, Libby. "'It all seems so small to me,' he said when he and the jostling crowd got there. "'I suppose if I should come back here ten years from now, "'it would be the size of a birdhouse.' Mrs. Henry Garth, the well-to-do widow of one of his closest childhood friends, took him out to the Mount Olivet Cemetery in her carriage so that he could visit the graves of those he called my people. His mother Jane, dead twelve years now, his luckless older brother Orion, his younger brother Henry, for whose accidental death forty-four years before he still blamed himself, and his father, John Marshall Clemens whose early death had forced young Sam to go to work while still a schoolboy. That afternoon, an informal reception for Clemens was held at the Farmers' and Merchants' Bank. Old schoolmates crowded in to shake his hand. "'How you doing, Eddie?' he asked one. "'Like yourself, Sam,' the old man said. "'Like a cow's tail going down.' Clemens laughed. Gritty turns of phrase like that were his literary stock-in-trade. He went on to attend a Memorial Day ceremony at his mother's old Presbyterian church and dined that evening at Mrs. Garth's with Laura Hawkins Frazier, his childhood sweetheart, and the model for the golden-curled object of Tom Sawyer's affections, Becky Thatcher, who was now a stout widow with false teeth, in charge of Hannibal's home for the friendless. Then he hurried to the opera house to hand out diplomas at the Hannibal High School commencement. Take one, he told the students. Pick out a good one. Don't take two, but be sure you get a good one. It has been a rushing day, he wrote home to Livy that evening, and the next three days were almost as busy. Some members of the throng that continued to follow him around town had now chosen to dress up as characters from his books. Today Hannibal is full of Huck Finn's, Tom Sawyer's, and Becky's, Robertus love reported to his readers. There are more originals of Huck, Tom, and Becky in this town since Mark Twain arrived than one would expect to meet in a state-old town with twenty-three respectable Sunday schools and a Salvation Army. You don't need to bait your hook if you go fishing for a huck. Just make a cast anywhere around town and there's your huckleberry. On Saturday evening, Clemens agreed to speak before a hastily arranged meeting at the ladies' labina club. Hannibal spelled backward. He was the country's most popular platform performer, as well as its best-known writer, and audiences like this one were ordinarily child's play for him. But this crowd was different. Seated among the 500 townspeople who had squeezed into the hall to hear him were seven of his boyhood friends, white-haired now and bent with age. At first, things went well, and he had everyone laughing at a story from his youth in which his mother played a part. Then suddenly... He bowed his head to hide his tears. "'I realize that this must be my last visit to Hannibal, he told his anxious listeners when he could bring himself to speak again. "'And in bidding you hail, I also bid you farewell.'" Robertus Love wrote, "'His voice was choked, his utterance was broken.'" It was the almost wailing voice of an old man who realized that his years were behind him. Mark Twain had forgotten his worldwide fame, the plaudits of princes, the friendship of emperors, the adulation of the multitudes of many lands. He had forgotten his books and his splendid home in the East. Nothing remained to him save the past of a half a century ago and the insistent clamor of that inward voice crying across the ears. Farewell. Farewell. By the next morning, Clemens' customary impishness had returned. He dropped in at several Sunday schools attached to churches that had not even existed in his time, and gravely assured each group of children that he had once been one of them, even pointing out the chair in each classroom in which he had supposedly sat. He climbed with an old friend named John Briggs up Holiday's Hill, Cardiff Hill, in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Down there by the island is the place we used to swim, he said when they got to the top. Yonder is where a man drowned. There's where the steamboat sank. Down there on Lover's Leap is where the Millerites put on their robes one night to go to heaven. None of them went that night. But I suppose most of them have gone by now. When it was time for him to take the train to Columbia the next morning, a large throng gathered at the depot to see him off. He spotted an old schoolmate named Tom Nash in the crowd, deaf since developing scarlet fever after falling through the ice while skating with Clemens forty years before. "'He was old and white-headed,' Clemens recalled. "'But the boy of fifteen was still visible in him. "'He came up to me, made a trumpet of his hand at my ear.' Nodded his head toward the citizens and said confidentially, in a yell like a foghorn, "Same damn fools, Sam. Same damned fools." Chapter One: A Boy's Paradise. I was born the thirtieth of November, eighteen thirty-five, in the almost invisible village of Florida, Monroe County, Missouri. The village contained a hundred people, and I increased the population by one percent. It is more than many of the best men in history could have done for a town. There is no record of a person doing as much, not even Shakespeare. But I did it for Florida, and Missouri, and it shows I could have done it for any place. Even London, I suppose. Chapters from my autobiography, 1906. Samuel Clemens was born in a two-room rented shack some thirty-five miles southeast of Hannibal, in Florida, Missouri. The fourth son and sixth of seven children born to John Marshall and Jane Lampton Clemens. One infant son had died before Sam's birth. Only four of the children would survive to adulthood. And Sam, born two months premature, was so thin and sickly his mother remembered that I could see no promise in him. But Haley's comet had blazed in the sky the night he was born, and she clung to the hope that it might be a bright omen for her baby's future. He was christened Samuel Langhorn Clemens. Samuel was his paternal grandfather's name. Langhorn, the family name of old friends of his father's. But in his early years, because of his size and fragility, everyone called him Little Sammy. His health was just one of his parents' worries. John Marshall Clemens was a merchant and lawyer, descended from a prominent Virginia family, concerned always with keeping up appearances, but chronically unable to make a go of things. Like thousands of other ambitious young men of his time and place, he moved westward with his growing family again and again, five times in a dozen years. Betting that first one raw frontier settlement and then another would flourish and he with it, He had managed along the way to buy more than seventy thousand mountainous acres of pine forest in Tennessee, which he believed would one day make his family rich beyond their dreams. But in the interim, none of his plans ever quite worked out. He was always well respected by his neighbors and warm and loving toward his eldest daughter, Pamela. But toward his sons, he remained stern, unsmiling, according to Sam. "'My father and I,' he wrote, We're always on the most distant terms when I was a boy. A sort of armed neutrality, so to speak. He remembered that he never saw his father laugh. Jane Clemens was different. My mother was very much alive, Sam would remember. Fond of excitement, fond of novelties, fond of anything going that was of a proper sort for members of the church to indulge in. Always ready for Fourth of July processions, Sunday school processions, lectures, conventions, camp meetings, revivals in the church, and never missed a funeral. She loved dancing and music, too. Enjoyed having as many as nineteen cats and kittens underfoot. Delighted in storytelling. She was the most eloquent person I ever met in all my life, her son recalled. All qualities he would inherit. ...along with his mother's thick red hair. By 1839, when Sam was four, it had become clear, even to John Clemens, that Florida, like all the other outposts he had tried, was never going to prosper. And he moved his family once again, this time to the Mississippi River town of Hannibal. Its future looked bright. It was already home to one thousand people. Three steamboats came and went each day. There was even talk of a railroad... Clemens bought a small hotel called the Virginia House, just one hundred yards from the riverfront, but he would suffer disappointments here, too. The town did grow, but too slowly to provide enough guests to keep his hotel going. He borrowed money to stock a dry goods store that also went under, struggled to support his family on the meager fees he earned as a justice of the peace, and finally pulled his eldest son, Orion, out of school and packed him off downriver to St. Louis to learn the printer's trade so that he could help keep the family afloat. A distant cousin bought a narrow lot on Hill Street and allowed Clemens to build on it the house Sam visited in his old age. But when Sam was eleven, the family had to sell off most of its furnishings to pay its debts and moved across the street to rooms above the drugstore, where Jane did the cooking for the druggist family in lieu of rent. Jane Clemens constantly worried about money as her family teetered between near-prosperity and genteel poverty. And although Sam's health slowly improved, she had to endure the death of two more children, daughter Margaret and then a son, Benjamin, in the space of three years. When Benjamin died, she had six-year-old Sam touch the head of his older brother's corpse in Farewell, an experience that gave him terrifying nightmares and led him to believe himself somehow responsible for his sibling's death. Nonetheless, Sam remembered Hannibal as a boy's paradise. In Hannibal, when I was a boy, he remembered, everybody was poor but didn't know it. And everybody was comfortable and did know it. In the nearby oak forest, he and his young friends pretended to be Indians or pirates. Robin Hood and his merry men, and later, treasure hunters, like the hopeful young men who began streaming through Hannibal after gold was discovered in California. The boys explored a deep limestone cave where the corpse of a fourteen-year-old girl was preserved for a time in a copper cylinder, and where a local ne'er-do-well named Injun Joe was said once to have gotten lost, surviving only on bats. They spent whole days alone on an island in the Mississippi, fishing, smoking corn cob pipes, and an especially rank brand of cigars known locally as Garth's Damnedest inventing elaborate pranks to play on the townspeople, and swimming naked in the big river. Nine times Sam was pulled from the water in what he recalled as a substantially drowned condition. His mother tried to laugh off the narrow escapes by telling him, people who are born to be hanged are safe in water. One of Sam's closest boyhood friends was Tom Blankenship, the son of the town drunkard, who lived not far from the Clemens' home in a dilapidated old house. "'He was ignorant, unwashed, insufficiently fed,' Clemens wrote later, "'but he had as good a heart as ever any boy had. "'His liberties were totally unrestricted. "'He was the only really independent person, boy or man, in the community, "'and by consequence he was tranquilly and continuously happy "'and was envied by all the rest of us. "'We liked him. We enjoyed his society.' And as his society was forbidden us by our parents, the prohibition trebled and quadrupled its value. And therefore we sought and got more of his society than...